first of all, Florida multifamily market is very active right now. That everyone wants to be here. Everyone's trying to get deals because of that. There's a lot of competition. So from a broker's perspective, what we do all day is we, you know, we say all the time we're we hunt deals. We're you know we're calling on deals. We have a, a list and we just it's cold calling. Um, you can get really scientific with it, but at the end of the day, you have to dial. You have to dial, you know, and, and reach out to these people. And it's a multi-touch process, right? So you're not going to call somebody. If I call you and you own a 300-unit property and I call you, like, hey, let me see some financials on your property. It's not, it doesn't go over all, right? You have to build rapport and you have to, you know, bring value. So when I'm calling uh, potential clients, I'm not asking them for stuff. I'm seeing what I can do for them. You're listening to the Gorilla State Investing Podcast. We're not here to bruise your bananas with guru sales pitches, overrated fluff, or any other kind of monkey business. We simply provide the ground-pounding truth about what it takes to be successful in real estate. Welcome back to another episode of Gorilla State Investing Podcast. I am here with Nasser Alhafi with Capstone. I'm excited for this interview because this is my first interview with a broker. And a lot of our listeners are most likely investors, buyers um, that are really interested to get the perspective from a broker inside of this in lend, uh, buying environment right now. It is hot as can be, a lot of overpriced properties, a lot of overpayers, as Nasser will uh, attest to. But Really quick, let me give you a quick background of Nasser, okay? He was born and raised, uh, born in Kuwait, raised in Dubai, started out in banking, left to start a vending machine empire, but realized it wasn't for him. I really want to hear about the vending machine empire before we dive into anything else. Um, and then a friend hired him in a commercial lending firm where they were the, one of the largest ground-up construction lenders for flags hotels in the country. He transitioned transitioned. The firm's focus to multifamily and joined the development team where he worked on several class A multifamily projects in Southwest Florida. A boss friend started a new venture on low income, low income impact investing in both lending and multifamily, ran business development there for a while, but wanted to get back into multifamily where I where I can deal with owners and assets. And that's where he found Capstone. He's been at Capstone for just over a year. Uh, Nasser, welcome to the program, man. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, let's start out. Uh, give us give us the background. I know I read uh, horribly read your bio, but why don't you just give us a little bit of a backstory on how you landed at Capstone um, and why you're so interested in multifamily? Yeah, no, um, you know, I started off in banking, like you had mentioned, and then I uh, left to start my own vending machine company with my brother. Uh, I was not very long lived. We did that for about a couple of years. And then uh, a buddy of mine that I met at, at a gym a while, a while back, he had a uh, commercial lending company and I just reached out to him and he, he had an opening. So I, uh, he took me on. I don't think in the beginning, I don't think he really had a role for me. I think he was just doing me a solid and he brought me on and I started doing uh, commercial mortgages um, and a lot of construction residential mortgages as well. And then we, we were the, I, I transitioned to being a portfolio manager for the uh, for the fund essentially, and we were basically we were a lender and a, and a debt broker for uh, ground up construction SBA loans for hotels all across the country. Any Marriott, Hilton, we did a lot of that uh, kind of lending, and then we started transitioning over into uh, developing multifamily, 
And then, so my role shifted. We stopped doing so many loans. We would still service the loans that we had, but we started shifting into using most of our time and effort into developing multifamily. And we did that most in, mostly in Southwest Florida. So I think I was a part of about over a thousand, maybe just under a thousand units of ground and construction class A multifamily out of the ground um, over, over a couple, two or three year period. And then um, that same friend and founder of that company, he moved, he started another venture uh, focusing on low-income housing, uh, impact investing. Um, so I, I ran business development for that for, for a while, but I was kind of getting away from multifamily. So I was kind of looking to get back into dealing with investments. I was always, I've always been interested in investing um, and real estate. I was trying to get a couple of deals done myself, but I had some unsavory experiences with a broker and, and, a, and a seller. So um, I made the transition. I, I learned a little bit about Capstone. I started seeing their deals come through and I reached out to them and um, I've been with the firm since May and it's been, it's been awesome. And you're based out of Tampa with yes. Capstone? Yeah. What, so what area are you covering with Capstone? What's your territory? So I'll, I'll drive anywhere. I was down in my, my first deal I drove was in Belglade, Florida. Um, it's, it's pretty far from, from Tampa. Um, but Anywhere, Boca Raton, West Palm Beach. Um, you know, we just opened up an office in Jacksonville, but we, we, we'll go up to Jacksonville, obviously, still. Uh, but we, now we have a presence in Jacksonville. Uh, we're based in Tampa, but like I said, if we can drive there, we'll, we'll go there. Awesome. Okay. Like I said, it's piqued my interest, this vending machine empire. I love how you were, used the word empire. You must have had a dream about what, what kind of vending machines was it back then? So there were the standard vending machines. I bought them used. So I was working at the bank and this guy would come in and he was always looked happy. I was not happy at the bank being a personal banker. I was just not happy. So um, he would come in all the time and he had, you know, he had multiple business businesses going and I would, I would, I would dealt with all the business accounts. So he would, I would talk to him. He's like, yeah, man, I just have some vending machines. And you know, they, you buy something for 25 cents, you sell it for a dollar. And you know, that made sense to me. So I was like, you know, I gave it some thought and I, I told my brother about it and we just crafted this idea like, hey, let's let's do this and blow it out. So we ended up buying like, I think, 10 vending machines and placing them around uh, Tampa, like in different um, car repair shops, apartment buildings and stuff like that. And um, it was funny because I was driving a Mitsubishi Lancer at the time. My brother was driving another like another small car. We had no way of transporting these 800 pound machines. So uh, we'd have to like, you know, we would, it was just a poor financial decision. We just have to rent a U-Haul or borrow a friend's truck to move them. And uh, it was a lot of accounting and all of our friends would come over and, you know, we'd see, I lived with my brother at the time. Our, one of our rooms was just like the inventory room. So it had just, you know, Cheetos and Snickers oh and all that God. kind of stuff right there. So uh, we also had breathalyzer vending machines, which were pretty popular. You put them up in a bar and you put a dollar in, it spits out a straw, tells you your BAC level. So that one was a little bit better than the regular vending machines. Um, so you were in the bank, you were still working at the bank while you're doing kind of a side hustle with the vending machines? When I initially started the idea, I was still with the bank, but I had left the bank to do this full time. So I oh, put you were all in money and I was just, you know, I was, I said, well, so at what, at what point did you say, you know, this, this just isn't working. I know. I'm, and I'm asking because there's a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to this. I'm an entrepreneur. We all think we have good ideas. We run with it. But at some mm -hmm. point you almost, I think, what does Kevin O'Leary say? Take it behind the shed and shoot it. You know, yeah, what, yeah, what point so, were you, were you, did you take the vending machines behind the shed and be like, that's it. I'm done. 
it took a while to be completely done with it because, you know, we had these machines. It's not like you can just get, get rid of them easily, right? You have to find a buyer for them. We didn't just want to store them in a storage facility and, you know, do nothing with them. So we, we would service the machines. We just weren't actively looking for more machines. And then uh, I rubbed, ended up rupturing my Achilles one year and uh, it was tough to move machines with oh ruptured Achilles. So we, uh, I found a, I found a guy locally that was, um, he did this, but you know, he was doing it right. Like he had maybe 150 machines. He had a big truck. He knew how to fix them himself. I didn't know any of that. Right. You know, so we would have to just outsource everything and everything was, everything was just another cost and we just weren't efficient. I learned a lot. I'm so glad I did it, but it was just, at a, it got to a certain point where it just didn't make any financial sense to keep doing it. And I, and I didn't enjoy it really. Didn't I didn't like you know, it. I like the, I like the sales part of it, like going to a property manager and pitching them on the idea or a bar manager and pitching them on the idea. I like that part, but servicing a vending machine is it's a lot of meticulous accounting. And, you know, I was okay in accounting, but I, nowhere near uh, right. being inventory management. So it has to be ran probably very, very efficient to reach the margins that this guy was telling yeah. you about when he walked into the bank. Yes. Okay. Yes. So that idea, that idea um, died. So you went back into personal banking or is that when you made a transition into the commercial side? No. So when I was on crutches with my ruptured Achilles, I reached out to a buddy of mine who had, uh, he, he owned his own business. I met him at a gym and, you know, he always, he was a good guy to be around and I really liked him. So I just reached out to him and said, Hey, I'm trying to get back in the workforce. Um, is it okay if I send you my resume, maybe you can you know, pass it around. He's like, well, actually I'm looking to hire somebody right now. Um, they did a, a number of things that the, for the position he hired me for, was uh, to help with doing uh, construction mortgages for for residents residences down in Southwest Florida. So I was basically a, an assistant to the guy that was running it, and uh, I did that for a while. And then it just kind of transitioned into a loan servicing kind of role for the commercial uh, lending that we were doing. And then I was I was promoted to like a portfolio manager. So I would basically we had a portfolio of over four hundred million dollar loans. Um, and I would just service that. I would be the, the, the go-between between the, the lenders, the borrowers, the government entities, the general contractors, things like that. So did that for a while. And then um, one day he just started deciding to, uh, to start develop multifamily. And initially I wasn't very involved because it was just kind of his pet project that he was doing on the side with some equity partners. And then proof of concept kind of showed them they, they could do this. They merchant build it so they, they would build it and then lease it up and then sell it. And then um, they started just to do that several times over. So there was one, two, three, four, about three to four projects um, that there that, that we built while I was, I was with the firm. And yeah, it was, it was great. It was really, really eye-opening. I never didn't know a whole lot about multifamily, um, but they kind of opened my eyes to it. So. And you said you, you were, you were investing in some, was it multifamily or single family? This was, yeah. So this was after I was in this firm, I was trying to, I was always trying to like flip a house or, you know, I would always come very close and then something would happen. You know, my partner yeah. was, would back out or, you know, we didn't have the winning bid or whatever the case may be. I'm sure everyone, all real estate investors have, feel, feel that pain. Right. So, um, but after I started working with this firm, um, I started identifying some smaller multifamily deals that I could take down with my family. And we came pretty close. It was like a small little 12 unit deal in St. Pete. Uh, we came close, but you know, the broker wasn't the best, uh, kind of adversarial, wasn't very helpful. And then we were 
promised one thing, delivered another, or wouldn't develop, uh, delivered anything at all. So it's got to have a bad taste in my mouth. But I think that's that's really when I decided, I was like, you know, I could be a broker. I mean, I, I could definitely do that because I like dealing with the properties. You know, you, you have to know the properties really, really well, and you have to understand people. And those are all things that I was always kind of historically good at. And when I had this bad experience with this broker, I was like, well, I mean, if he's a broker, I mean, I, I know I could definitely do that and do it much better. Right. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, you, so now you understand as a broker, now you understand what some of the buyers go through when they deal sure. with a, a seller that is just uncooperative <laughs> or right. a broker that just doesn't do what he says he's going to do. Mm-hmm. So now you're in the shoes of the broker. And I think me selfishly and probably a lot of our listeners really want to get into the meat and potatoes on, you know, how do we win deals, uh, especially in the environment we're in now? So maybe talk about, let's talk about the state of the uh, multifamily market in Florida, because that's your, mm-hmm. that's your backyard. And then just talk about, you know, how do you, from step one to the end as a broker, go get the deal from that seller, market it and get it to best and final. So you, sure. can you walk us through that process? Yeah. So first of all, Florida multifamily market is very active right now that everyone wants to be here. Everyone's trying to get deals because of that. There's a lot of competition from the small little 15 unit deals to the 350 class A deals. I mean, there's just across the board. There's just a lot of competition for all types of deals. Um, so from a broker's perspective, what we do all day is we, you know, we say all the time, we're, we hunt deals. We're, you know, we're calling on deals. We have a, a list and we just, it's cold calling. Um, you can get really scientific with it, but at the end of the day, you have to dial. You have to dial, you know, and, and reach out to these people. And it's a multi-touch process, right? So you're not going to call somebody. If I call you and you own a 300-unit property and I call you, like, hey, let me see some financials on your property. It's not, it doesn't go over all, right? You have to build rapport and you have to, you know, bring value. So when I'm calling uh, potential clients, I'm not asking them for stuff. I'm seeing what I can do for them. Say, hey, you know, this property down the road sold for X dollars a door. Um, how are you seeing your property? You know, if, if that property sold for that, what, what do you think your property would be worth? Or, you know, anyway, so you're calling, you these, kinda... these people that you're calling are not necessarily wanting to sell their property, correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're not like they've, they haven't indicated to me in any which way that they would like to sell the deal. Yeah. I got gotcha. you. So it's a multi touch. So I have one, one, one property I'm working on right now. Really nice guy. It's a small little 13 unit deal. I've been calling him since last June and we're getting close, but you know, if it takes another few months and it takes another few months, that's just, you know, that's just the nature of the job. Um, but it's, you know, it's interesting. You have to really, you have to be patient um, as a broker, you know, it's, you know, you're, it's, you're not salaried, right? So it's all, it's all commission. So you know, if a deal gets pushed out three months, that means you don't get paid for another three months and you have to be able to weather that storm and kind of maintain your, your focus and maintain like, you know, even today, if no one gave me any good indication on the phone, I still got to keep hitting the phones tomorrow and keep, keep that consistency. So, um, so that, that's essentially how we get it. So eventually as you build rapport, you talk, maybe you catch somebody on a good day and they eventually decide to, you know, you, you kind of let them know, Hey, listen, right now, it's a really aggressive market. We could probably maximize pro- pro- pricing for you. I'd love to put together a valuation for you. So we typically will put together a, a BOV or a broker's opinion of value. Show them what kind of valuation we could, you know, we could get 
for the property in a competitive marketed scenario versus an off-market scenario, right? And then if they are, are agreeable to it and they like the numbers that, we, that we've seen, uh, that we've shown them rather, we will show them a listing agreement. We come to agreement on, on a listing agreement. It's, it's different each time. Sometimes it's incentive-based, sometimes it's a flat fee, depending on you know, really what the client prefers. Um, and then we start marking the deal. And you know, depending on how much of a, how, what our scope is and, and how, how wide they want us to market it, you know, we, we can either do a limited marketing scenario just so our internal, you know, best, best clients or best buyers that we know of, or put it out to the world and see what we can do. So who makes that decision? So you got this, let's say you have this 20 unit, um, you call this owner, his name's John and you, you work him for a year and a half. And John finally says, no, nah, sir. Yep. I want to sell. I want you to do the deal for me. You go, uh, you put together the whole, uh, pitch deck, you do the marketing material who makes the decision on where that deal gets marketed to? Is it you? Is it the buyer? Or is it kind of a, a hybrid? It's it's always, you know, effectively, it's always up to the to the to the client. We always give our, our, our opinion, right? So, you know, this is what we do for a living. So we, we will let them know, listen, if you want to maximize pricing and you want to get the most eyeballs on it, especially in a market like we are in currently, you want to market it to the fullest degree. So you want to first we put it out. Typically, we, we put it out on our website, right? And we, you know, we prepare our offering memorandum and we get the T12s and the rent rolls all, you know, in a, in a basically a document vault and we send it out. And then maybe a week later, we'll put it on the Crexies and what loop nets and, you know, it's, it's shown on, on CoStar. And the way we market it too, is we don't just put it up on there and wait for, for deals to come our way. Right. So we will pull a list of owners of similar type properties within a two to three hour radius um, from that property. And we start proactively calling those owners. Like, hey, listen, your property, you know, Smith apartments is very similar to the one we have in the market right now. Is that something that interests you? And we show them and we try and get engagement that way. In addition to fielding incoming calls, uh, or emails that come in. So how many listings do you have currently right now? Right now in the market, we have two, we have, yeah, we have two right now. Um, one is about to go under contract, not separate of those two. We, we, we had one previously at we, we, the end buyer went through the best and final process and got their offer accepted. So we're just trying to get that under, under contract here shortly. So we have two right now and we have a, a few more coming in the, in the coming, coming weeks. And when you say we, is that like a team, you and a team? Team. Or, yeah. And so okay. that, that's one of the nice things about the firm I'm at Capstone is we um, it's not as, cutthroat as I, as I thought brokerage would be. Right. So I thought it'd be, you know, you have your clients and it's like, you know, doggy dog, you just stay and uh, within your own lane, you can't collaborate with people. Capstone is really quite different. It's uh, everyone openly collaborates with each other. Um, not just our local Tampa team, but we also openly collaborate with all the brokers across all of our offices, be it in the Carolinas, Tennessee, Ohio, Colorado, we all openly collaborate and, and kind of communicate with each other. Um, so it's really kind of, you know, if you're, if Capstone is lucky enough to market your property, you really get all of Capstone and you're not getting just one, one group and one team and one office. Right. Right. So you said you got two deals, um, on the go right now. Is that, is that normal for a broker in your situation in Southwest Florida to have a couple going on at the same time, or is it, is yeah. it just kind of cyclical? Yeah. And that, that's the hope, you know, you want to have, you want to have mo as many deals as possible going at the same time. Um, and that's why you have a team, right? So it's not, it's, it's, you're not going to get 
you know, bogged down with, with limited bandwidth because you can only handle two or three deals, but you have, there's different. So there's the, the broker that brings in the deal. They're the source broker, the lead broker on the deal. Then there's their, their number two that, you know, there's all roles and responsibilities and that, and, and, and so it's, it makes it easy to work several deals at a time because, you know, you really have a team to lean on as well. Yeah. All right. So how do people break through to create the relationship with the broker so they're getting the deals? Like there's a lot of experienced investors and there's a lot of newbie investors and everyone was started as a newbie, no matter how successful they are now, they always start out with no deals and right. they're trying to break through and they understand that the way to get deals is to create a relationship with the broker. So when that broker gets a deal done, they get the email or they get sent the information. You know, what, what uh, suggestions do you have for those people trying to get you on the phone so that you'll send them the deal when it becomes uh, when it's on the market. Sure, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I would say quick feedback. I understand, and all brokers understand that not every deal is for everybody. That that's that's just factual. You know, sometimes people have different criteria. They need they have different underwriting metrics that they need to hit, and that's fine. But quick feedback makes our job a lot easier. It also helps us better understand what kind of deals make sense for you. So. It's not so much the marketed stuff that everybody gets to see, but you know we always have off-market pocket listings essentially that the owner doesn't really want to market it. But if somebody can bring him a number at X, he'd be a he'd be a seller. So I'm not going to go out out of respect for the client and, and and their wishes. I'm not going to go out and market that to every single person that I ever talked to. Right? It's just I have to you know be aware of who's buying these types of deals, who wants. 50 units in Arcadia, Florida, you know, it, it's, you have, right. you have to really kind of understand that. So quick feedback is key. Um, staying in contact, you know, we're always receptive to phone calls. We're, we're on the phone all the time. So if our phone rings, we're going to pick it up. Right. Um, being able to kind of understand that we operate in a fast moving industry so that the, your ability to kind of get us quick feedback and get a quick no is just as good as a quick yes, right? So understanding that this is not a deal for us because of X, fine, I'll find you the next one, you know, because we're always in front of deals. It just makes our job a little easier if we're not chasing down people to get a no three weeks later that, you know, could have been a no last week, right? I think that's a fear too of, of a newbie investor. And I'll, I'll use me an example. Uh, I've called you before to get, and you've sent me some deals. And the fear going into it is that, man, if I tell him no, he's going to stop sending me deals. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the furthest thing from the truth. I think I think what you want to see is, hey, no, but why? Mm -hmm. Hey, man, no, we did our underwriting. You know, We're a million dollars under asking. We're not going to be competitive. And here's why we have to pass on this property. And you're just mm -hmm. going to go, okay, man. I'm going to cross you off the list. We'll get the next one. Yeah. Is that correct? That, that's exactly like this, this business. And I think real estate in general, I think I've, I've heard it in several different real estate podcasts and, you know, different uh, real estate um, mentors of mine, your network is more important than your net worth, right? So you always want to be able to know as many people as possible that are doing the things that you want to be involved with, right? So Knowing as many people, knowing the amount of people, but also knowing what they're into, what they're what they're looking for, and, and how I can best help them, uh, really serves you better in the long run. So, one guy doesn't want your deal, that's fine. There's that's I only you only only one guy's gonna end up buying it, right? Only one buyer's gonna end up buying it anyways, right? So it's not it's not realistic to think that every single person wants every single deal. Um, 
but yeah, giving us honest feedback is, is a great way for us to, okay, perfect. Uh, now I know what this person wants and I'll try and get them a, a, on the next one. You know? Yeah. All right. Dial it back to somebody that has no deals and they want to get the listings that you're sending. How mm -hmm. do they break through? Because I know some brokers are probably sniffing out tire kickers and guys that aren't serious. And, you know, you probably feel, I'm, I'm assuming you filled a lot of those phone calls. How do you decipher between, okay, this guy's a newbie, but he's serious. And it could be a long-term relationship where maybe he won't close a deal this year, but, you know, he may have something five, 10 years down the road and be, you know, one of the premium buyers and closers yeah. versus well, the guy that, that versus the guy that's like, yeah, this is what I want to do. And you're like, nah, I don't believe you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we have, we have, like you said, we field a lot of phone calls, a lot of serious buyers, a lot of not so serious buyers, right? So the biggest thing to differentiate the serious buyers and the not so serious buyers is people that actually underwrite the deals. So if you're actually underwriting the deals and everybody underwrites a little different. So when I, when we put together our broker pro forma, people are always going to underwrite their own way because they just, oh, it's a broker pro forma. It's probably best case scenario, whatever. We try to be as conservative as possible, but we're still trying to sell the deal, right? So we still put together, um, you know, a, a realistic case, but everyone has to underwrite their own way. And the people that, and the only thing they say, what's the cap rate? What's the cap rate? What's the cap rate? Well, it's like, well, that's not the most important metric, especially now with cap rates being compressed. It's, it's you know, prices are going through the roof. Um, you have to see there's different metrics. So, so, you know, people that actually take the time to look at the T12 and underwrite it and do their own projections, even if they have no deals, at least you know that they're actually trying to make something work and make something make sense. Maybe they're, you know, they've, they've been working a great job for a while. They put stashed away some cash and they have half a million dollars, $700,000 ready to go to put towards a deal. And, you know, they just need the right one. And that's fine. We, we deal with those kind of guys all the time and they're, they're great to work with because they're, you know, very responsive and they, they take it seriously. There's a lot of guys that just shoot off emails from a, you know, John Wayne at gmail.com. What's yeah. the cap rate. And then, you know, you, ne you never hear from them again. So, yeah. And you just cross them off the list. Yeah. So do you recommend, are, are you asking buyers to share their underwriting with you or more share like, this is, I can't do this deal because my underwriting is showing this, this, and this versus sending you the entire spreadsheet and be like, Hey man, here you go. Check it yeah. out. No, they don't, you don't need to share your spreadsheet with us. Just let us know like kind of what you're underwriting to. Like, you know, especially with, um, with a lot of deals, it's projection based, right? So you're projecting out what the costs are going to be. This operator has owned the deal for 30, for 30 years. He has a lower cost because he's been running it pretty efficiently his whole life and it works for him. But a new guy coming in, maybe they live in North Dakota, they're buying a deal in Tampa and, you know, they're not going to be able to self-manage. They're going to have to do third-party management and they're going to have to project their own costs. Just being able to outline the, the items that give them pause when they're underwriting helps us better understand that one, they're seriously looking at the deal and two, gives us a better idea of what kind of deals would make more sense for that. All right. So you mentioned it uh, a few minutes ago, the, the high priced properties uh, mm -hmm. in the environment today. Can you, can you give some indication on why um, properties are priced? I mean, I guess you could say high, but cap rates are compressed and sellers are getting premium dollar and, and buyers are paying premium dollar. Do you have, a, you have your thumb on why that is right now? I'm not sure uh, anyone does knows for sure. But I think what, we, what we've been seeing recently is since the pandemic, a lot of people have been flooding into the Florida market from you know New York, Chicago, California, Washington, 
places where real estate is typically much more expensive, but right now it's maybe a little tougher to be a landlord with, you know, rent restrictions or um, eviction moratoriums, things like that. Whereas Florida, you know, we joke around about it all the time, but Florida has been essentially open for business. <laughs> I think we shut down maybe, maybe a month, maybe yeah. two months, something like that. It might've been longer, but it didn't, if you go out now in Florida to a restaurant, to a, you know, a hotel, wh- whatever it is, it's, it's full, it's busy. Um, so it's, you know, people are kind of, I think they're identifying the migration trends and they're seeing that people are moving to places like Florida and Texas and Arizona. And that's kind of what's making people more interested. And when, just like anything else, when there's more interest, prices will come up. And you also have groups that maybe historically don't have a presence in, in Florida. So if you're getting, if you're newly entering a market, you're probably going to overpay your first couple of deals, you know, just because you don't have the track record. So you have to kind of put your money where your mouth is like, I can close this deal and I'm going to show you because I'm going to put hard money day one and I'm going to, you know, pay above, above ask or whatever the case may be. So I think it's, it's a combination of things, um, but definitely out of state investors flooding the market, wanting to get their hands on some Florida real estate, they're driving prices up. Okay. So yeah. So you attest to, it's a super competitive environment right now. Prices are at a premium. How do you get to best and final? I mean, what's, what's a strategy that you're seeing that some of these investors are using to get to best and final? Yeah. So that's, uh, that's a tricky question. So um, we just marketed a land deal uh, recently, like a 33 acre, 35 acre uh, land deal. We had 17 groups offer. We had 10 groups go to best and final. We had to do two rounds of best and final because it was so hotly contested. You know, development's really big right now in multifamily because there's just not a whole lot of supply, but you know, even with the rising cost of uh, construction, it's still, you know, developers are just hungry for, for pieces of land that they can develop. To get the best and final, it's not just about pricing. Pricing is also obviously paramount, but the most important thing is your showing your ability to show that you can execute and kind of, like I said earlier, putting your money where your mouth is, putting hard money day one, subject to the typical carve-outs, you know, title, environmental, things like that. But putting hard money, shortening up your DD period. Um, those types of things are getting groups into the best and final. And also just expressing your interest. Hey, listen, if my offer is not competitive, please let me know. We really want this deal. I would love to enter. I would love to be in the best and final. And we will always go back to them. Hey, listen, your offer came in here. We can't tell you where the other offers are, but put your best foot forward it'll likely have to be in this kind of range, more or less. We can't, we don't, we don't ever tell anyone where other offers came in because it's not fair to the process. Right. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, it's just being upfront and honest and, and showing your, your willingness to kind of get competitive and, and uh, you know, aggressive with your terms. It's not just about pricing, but it's about, you know, your DD times, your hard money, things like that. Yeah. So from the time that the, the property is marketed to getting to the best and final, is that like, do you have a set time in your mind when you put a property up? Like, hey, in three weeks, we want to get to best and final on this property. Or is it kind of a day by day, see what the interest level is, and then uh, and then make that decision? So typically, we'll, we'll set a call for offers date pretty early in the process. We'll, you know, a weekend, we'll say, okay, let's do it in three weeks. And we, agree, you know, we discuss that with the owner. And we give our two cents, like, you know, we think this is how long we'll need to kind of 
Because also you want to have time to, to get some tours done on the mm-hmm. property, right? So we typically will set tour dates, predetermined tour dates, so we limit the, the, the tenant disruption. Um, but yeah, it's typically three to four weeks into the process, we'll set a call for offers. Now, if we have a lot of interest and we've already got you know, a handful of offers and people are calling all the time and, and there's a lot of interest there already, we can bring it up sooner, but typically it's about three or four weeks in. Okay. So when we do call for offers. All right. So upon like closing on the property, let's like, for example, our team, we're not based in Tampa, Florida, mm-hmm. but let's say there's a deal there. There's maybe a 25 unit deal that we, uh, we want and we get to best and final. We actually win, win the, win the property. We don't have an entire team set up to go in and do the rehab and the property manager. Is that something that brokers generally help with? Or is it more like, hey, uh, the deal's done and shake hands and slap slap each other on the butt and we'll go the separate ways? Yeah, I mean, I always say that this is a relationship business, not a transaction business. So like, if there's any way for me to assist, uh, not just myself, anyone on the team, if we have any kind of connections that would be beneficial um, or contacts, like, like you said, for a general contractor or property management introduction or whatever it may be, we're always going to be willing to, to make that introduction and uh, kind of keep the relationship going. So absolutely, we'll, we'll, we, we help as much as we can. Sometimes we just don't know anyone that, that would be a good fit, but we, you know, we can put some feelers out there, especially if you're not based in, in Tampa or Florida. You know, we probably have a network that's more uh, easily accessible than, than you, than you have. So we'll, we'll definitely assist in any way we can. Yeah. So what advice would you give to potential investors that are out of market that mm-hmm. live in Texas and want to buy in Florida and they know they like the properties and the environment is where they want to be in the market. But the fear is, well, who's going to manage it? Who's going to renovate it? You know, what advice do you have to them in order to, to execute the business plan on the property? So I would say whenever you're bidding on a property, you can ask the broker, is the property manager willing to stay on through uh, the transition and ownership? And especially for smaller deals. So, you know, a sub 50 unit deal, it's probably an individual. Maybe it's not a, pro- a professional property manager. It, it may be, but, you know, especially the smaller deals, it's typically just an individual that was hired has been doing it for a few years. Those individuals are typically very open to staying on on board. They like their job. They like the community. They like, you know, they, they're, they're good at what they do and they want to stay on. And um, so just ask the, ask the broker and, you know, that's always going to be a separate conversation that you, that the investor is going to need to have with the property manager. But um, that's, I would, in my mind, the easiest way just to kind of determine if someone is willing to stay on. Um, If not, as you're going through the process, ask for some recommendations, um, you know, there's always going to, if you're in a major market, you're going to find a property manager or someone that's going to be able to help. Um, but that, though, I think those are two good starting points at the very least. Okay. Awesome. All right. So what I want, I want you to give a couple of pieces of advice out here. Number one to fellow brokers, mm-hmm. you know, you've uh, you seem to have a pretty good handle on how important relationships are and, you know, under promising over delivering, et cetera. What advice do you have for maybe, new brokers or even experienced brokers on what's worked for you um, in relationship building and getting deals across the finish line. Yeah. Well, I will say that I'm still technically a new broker, so I don't know that I have uh, a whole lot of sage advice for for the uh, broker community. But uh, one thing that helped me a lot was just keeping your head down and just just continue. It, it's, it's tough, man. It's scary. I joined 
uh, brokerage in the middle of a pandemic. I started in May of last year. Um, it was it was a tough trend. I went from being a salaried employee to um, you know commission only, and it's it's scary. You know, I'm married. It's it's a it's a tough it's a tough transition, and you know this job this role is really like it's a lot of ebbs and flows. You have a great conversation. Someone says they're going to send you numbers, and you're just ecstatic, and then they don't send it to you for three or four weeks. And, you know, you don't want to be a pest and you don't want to ruin that relationship. So you just kind of have to keep on going, keep prospecting. So the only advice I can say is just believe in yourself, trust in yourself and just keep your head down and keep working. Because even if something is lagging a little bit behind than where you want it to be, you harping on it and worrying about it is not going to make it any better. You just try to stay as positive as possible. I kind of sound like a you know cheesy commercial or something, no, but it's the it's- truth. I mean, that's just what you have to do because um it's it's tough man it's tough to i think it's the same advice on the investor side absolutely i mean you're gonna get a ton of no's you're gonna hit Mm -hmm. a bunch of roadblocks um you know it's this is just the uh this is the get wealthy uh long-term play here like there's no quick there's not there's not going to be a flip a switch and all of a sudden you're making commission and you're closing deals and brokers and brokers and investors they have the same mindset we're entrepreneurial we're trying to make something out of really nothing. Like, you know, you're given some contact information and, and, a, and a deal name, and then you have to convince someone to send you. I mean, imagine someone called you and said, hey, send me your financials on your prop. I mean, if you've never met them before, especially during the pandemic, I wasn't shaking hands with anybody. I wasn't meeting anybody. Right. And, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. It's tough. Now it's gotten a little, little better. We just got back from a conference in San Diego. That was really nice and refreshing to see people out, and, you know, mingling and talking about deals. So um, it's getting better, but yeah, it's, it's a grind, man. It's a grind. Do brokers ever reinvest some of their commission back into the deal? They do. They do. I have not done that yet, but uh, yeah, they, they definitely do. And actually our company allows us to do it at least I think one deal a year. Um, we can just roll it in there. And it's, it's no problem. So um is that just something? So that's something you'd be inter- you're interested in doing as a broker if the deal's right and the partnership's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. I'm you know, I'm I'm a broker, but I'm also going to be acquiring and buying multifamily. That's that's this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. So um, you know, that's absolutely absolutely on my radar. All right. Last thing, man. What uh what do you advice do you have for the investors out there? Try to maybe switch it up from what you give for the brokers because it's probably the same thing, but yeah. maybe some advice. Let's let's dial it back to somebody that wants to get into multifamily on the investing side. You know, there's what- so much. There's so many good resources that you can read. I mean, I, when I started, not that I'm some type of expert. I'm of a broker, and I'm learning. I think everyone's learning every day, right? There's a million things you can read and do. Um, one thing is just be open to different ideas, different books, different podcasts, and just, li- just listen to it. I, you know, when, I, when I'm in the gym, I don't typically listen to music. I'm always listening to a podcast just because it's a good way to just kind of digest information without even realizing it. Um, Bigger Pockets is a great website you can go to that, you know, has, has a lot of good resources. People give explanations of the different deals they've done and how they've gotten it done. Um, but keep swinging. I mean, that's all you can do. I mean, that, the, this pricing, I don't think is going to last forever. I don't think, I mean, it never lasts forever, right? There's it gets super high pricing and really low pricing. So it's, there's going to be a time where the deals make a little bit more sense for you. But I think, um, you know, something that someone told me a long time ago is the best time 
to be in the market is now. It's not about, you know, timing the market, it's time in the market. So, you know, you can wait to find the perfect deal, but then you'll never, never do a deal. And having that track record of getting deals done is so important, especially when, as you get to the best and final, like we were talking about earlier, you know, someone with no track record, it's going to be tough to win the best and final unless they're paying hand over fist and putting up huge money, uh, hard money day one. Um, it's going to be tough, you know? So right, yeah. where can, where can people find you, man? I mean, LinkedIn is probably the best way. I mean, I'm not super active on social media, but LinkedIn, uh, definitely more so, especially as a broker, you got to, you know, post your, uh, post your, your listings and stuff. And that's, that's a great way to connect. So, uh, LinkedIn is probably the best way to do that. Awesome. I also appreciate your time, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Brandon. Thanks for listening to the Gorilla State Investing Podcast, where we give you the ground-pounding truth about what it takes to be successful in real estate. Learn more at realfocus.org slash gorillastatepod.